This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am so excited for today. We've got Andrew Liss. He is the Director of Economics and Data Analytics at the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. We've been trying to get Andrew on the show for a while. He's a super busy guy. And this is a relatively new position for him. New position, uh, that's not, right. Not being a commentator on the market. He's been in the data for years. Well, he worked for years. CMHC before. He worked for the provincial government, and now he's at the real estate board. So he's kind of had different, and we talk about this, right? Yeah. Different kind of institutional cultures in which he's operated in. And he's been in that network of people kind of really digging deep in the data. And we were kind of talking before we push record here about the type of guy that Andrew is. He's He's somebody that does not shy away from really digging in. Yeah. Would you say? And then also he's, he becomes obsessed with problems and getting to the bottom of things. The perfect guy to talk about the market. And you know what? He's, he's got some unique takes, some takes that we haven't ever heard on the show before. So this is, this is a great conversation. And we should say he has the lead blog, LEDE. Not sure. We should ask them the significance of, of that. The lead blog where he's he's putting down a lot of his thoughts as well. But I would stay tuned for this before you go check out the lead blog because this is a great conversation. Yeah, for sure. And uh, before we get to that conversation with Andrew, Matt, I just got off of a call on um, CFAX. C-F-A-X? CFAX? CFAX. Um, CFAX. Uh, I, <laughs> with Tony Joe. That's um, the, uh, this is... Uh, he's the Vic- host. He's an agent in Victoria. Super bright guy. Uh, really friendly guy. My understanding is it is going to be aired on Saturday on CFAX. Uh, so if you want to hear me talk about the Vancouver real estate market, Saturday morning, uh, Saturday morning. <laughs> yeah. And uh, on the radio and uh, totally different format than our show, but uh, really fun to be a part of. So I appreciate that. Uh, Tony ha- had us on. We are having Tony on in the near future as well to talk about the Victoria market. It's interesting talking about they're going through a lot of the same challenges as us right now with supply. Uh, they've got a ton of demand. They've got crazy affordability issues. Fascinating, but just on a on a different scale. I think the 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 price points in the markets go Vancouver, Toronto, Victoria, but Victoria is third in the country. Yeah, no, it's it's not cheap over there. No, it's not cheap. But and it, uh, and it has a lot of the same constraints Vancouver has. So it's a it's an interesting compare and contrast. Yeah. Well, one of the things that came up and the reason I brought this up really was because we, we were talking about the inventory question and we talked to Andrew about the inventory question today. And we talked to Andrew a lot, a lot about kind of the, the tangible, like what's going on with inventory. Right. But one thing we don't discuss at length, at least, is this idea of like the psychology of the market that why is inventory so low? And the reason I bring that up is because I actually, uh, Tony, uh, Joe asked me this question about inventory. And I actually, I 
I kind of didn't do a good job fleshing it out on the show. So I, and it forced me to kind of think about it. And you and I were talking about it. It's almost like the psychology of inventory goes, there's bad news in the market, mm-hmm. right? Like that's almost where it starts. And then Mr. or Mrs. Seller says, well, I don't have to sell. And they're, they're waiting for a brighter time to maybe move through the market, right? And then we see almost immediately, we see inventory kind of fall off, I think, in regards to that. We see fewer people listing their homes. More homes typically come to market when there's optimism in the market, right? Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, because they're not selling, there's a lot of people in the market too, where it becomes painful to sell this idea of like moving through the market because there's so little inventory and there's even less good inventory, right? So like when we sit down with sellers, they're like, well, we've been watching the market and there's been like maybe one or two homes in the past like six months that we'd consider moving on. Yeah. And they both sold in multiple offers. Well, and you think about it. So there's the the folks, the initial folks that you mentioned that are that don't like the pricing. They want price. yesterday's pricing. They, they're they not interested. Then there's the people that might say, well, the market's off 5%, but it's off in the condo that I'm selling off 5% and it's off 5% it's in a the wash. townhome. And in fact, it might make sense to move but those townhomes aren't emerging and they don't have anything to buy. Yeah, exactly. Because and, and this is what we saw during COVID. People with space stayed put because they were happy staying home. I've yeah. got a backyard, a garage, uh, whatever. So it created a very low amount of inventory in the larger space, which a lot of people were looking to move up, right? And it, But this is the other thing too, is that it's not easy to move, especially when there's such little inventory. And we've got an older demographic of homeowners. And I think we've talked about this before, but... If I'm like a young, ambitious couple and I'm thinking like 30 to say 55, maybe I'm willing to take a, a gamble on the market and, and try and move through the market. And maybe it, it's not going to be a super stressful pursuit. But if I'm 55 plus and I've been in my home for a long time and I'm really concerned about where I'm going to go, it's almost like the game of musical chairs where they have a chair. And they're like, I don't want to give up my chair because I'm not sure I could get another chair. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's like a, it's an odd and it's stressful, right? So it's like, it's, it kind of, I'm just basing this on anecdotes of people we've been meeting with and these conversations around what's, what happens when we sell. And it, it creates a lot of anxiety for people. You know, and, and, the, and there's a final thing, you know, we've talked a lot about immigration. Yes. And all of the demand levers that seem to be being pulled uh, to impact this market in the next number of years. And we've seen rents shoot through the roof in the last year. And I just wonder, and this is kind of, I'm just, I mentioned this in a conversation earlier today, but there is, for an average Canadian who owns real estate, I wonder if the supply demand imbalance that exists right across the country, but especially in markets like Victoria, Vancouver, I wonder if it's becoming so glaringly obvious that you'll do anything not to sell real estate in a lot of cases. Like it just, why would like I sell this? You're suggesting that there's just more hoarding going on. It, it, almost hoarding. And it maybe hoarding is it has a negative implication that I'm not trying to, to suggest. But people that, but have, people that are like, why? It, there's, there, there's a scarcity of this product. Yes. I, it seems like the writing's on the wall in terms of demand. The government why on earth supply, and in fact, they're creating demand with with the immigration numbers. Sure. Why on earth would I sell this right now? Right. That right. I wonder if there's like a general, broader consensus because not everybody thinks about real estate 
all day, every day either. But it does seem like there's something in the air right now. And it happens. I feel like I, uh, my sense is after, after downturns or during downturns where it never gets quite as bad as everybody thinks it's going to get. Mm-hmm. It's like a renewed confidence. And also just this idea of like, oh yeah, it turns out nobody did sell. There wasn't blood running in the streets. And in fact, it seems like this housing crisis is there's it's so intractable and so difficult to solve that I'm in a pretty good spot. And to kind of piggyback on what you're saying, a lot of people right now that we're talking to feel like we bottomed between September and December of last year, 2022. Mm-hmm. There's a renewed sense of optimism. If you carried it through the bottom. Yeah. Like, really, are you going to sell now? Like, I feel like you're, we're about to go on another run. And I'm just thinking of people with rental inventory or as, as somebody that has rental property, I'm, I'm not thinking, I'm thinking like, okay, the worst is over. I'm, chances are I see, I see a decent return over the next one to three years. It's not scary anymore. It's less scary. Yeah. In, in the market, in the real estate market. and, And the one thing that I was talking to somebody yesterday about is renewals. So when people come up for renewals, Maybe that leads to certain people having to sell, but renewals happen, they're rolling, right? There's no, it, it doesn't happen in a way where everybody, suddenly there's a glut of inventory because everybody renews at the same time, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't, I wonder if that ever moves the needle. Right. Uh, it's interesting. Anyway, food for thought. Food for thought. We unpack this even further in, but more tangibly with, uh, with, with Andrew, with yeah, Andrew. This, yeah. And, and he's much more intelligent about it. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? We have that. And then we also have quickly com. This site is is up and looking it, good. And you know what? We've made some changes. We have made like, some changes. I feel like it was up and it was looking good. Now it's looking better. It's looking even better. Yeah. It's, uh, man, what an accomplishment. <laughs> we advised on or helped advise on. We helped uh, advise but on. But here, yeah. here's the thing. Uh, if you go to the four sellers, you will get a copy of the solar plan. Lots of people signing up for the solar plan. Makes me a little bit more optimistic about uh, inventory. That's right. Lots of people thinking about selling. If you are thinking about selling this spring, check out the sold plan. It's our guide to getting your property ready for the market. It's easy. It's sold stands for start on launch date. So you pick your launch date. And it tells you exactly how to work your way backwards. And it, it's right down to a cleaning list, decluttering. This is all things that you have to do to get ready to sell a property in Vancouver. Keep in mind, Vancouver and Toronto are different markets to sell in. There's some extra steps in there that you may maybe haven't considered. And uh, just to be clear, you hit sell with us and you used to have to send an email, right? right? And then we'd send over the sold plan. Now you hit sell with us. And the link Instant. emerges. You get the sold plan and it's fantastic. So VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And Adam, as a final uh, thing before we cut to our talk with Andrew, you just dropped uh, a, a masterpiece of a listing video, I would say, and something that is a different format than we usually see in this market. Yeah. Dare I say something entirely new? You know what's funny is I was thinking about, I can't remember which movie this is, but where the guy's business idea is like, you've heard of the six minute abs? Like, I've got the five minute apps. <laughs> You've heard of listing videos. We do two listing videos. We do two now. listing we do videos. A, we do a short format and a long format. And you can see our long format walkthrough on our Instagram at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast.com. Uh, also, look for our five minute apps coming out this year. <laughs> uh, not starring us, but uh, yeah. Absolutely. So maybe we should cut to our talk with Andrew Liss from the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. This is a fantastic conversation. Yeah, you're going to learn a lot during this episode. 
This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Andrew List. He is the Director of Economics and Data Analytics at REBGV or the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Th- thanks for taking the time. And I got to say, you are one of the most recommended people we've had from other guests on our show. They've all said you got to get Andrew on the program. So uh, we're super excited to have you in studio. Yeah, yeah that's uh, hugely flattering. So. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for thanks for taking the time, can, for sure. Can, can you maybe start by, uh, like we know you from the context of uh, the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. So my current role is... Uh, building out the analytics capacity of the real estate board of greater vancouver so that's you know it's pretty multifaceted role actually there's like there's a lot going on so i'm i'll be in the sort of front person in the media talking about the market and where it's going but i'm also doing a lot of back-end work there that you know most people wouldn't see in terms of building out our data like pipelines and how we're going to turn that into useful products and tools that members and the public and media can use so that's kind of the current incarnation of what I'm doing. Prior to that, I was with the BC government, uh, actually in the housing policy branch of government. So I was the only economist working there, <laughs> which might surprise some people. <laughs> uh, uh, it certainly surprised me when yeah. I showed up. Uh, so yeah, that was an interesting role. I was there for about four or five years. And uh Prior to that, I uh, worked with CMHC in a similar kind of capacity, uh, working as an economist there, doing market analysis and so on. And then I've had some totally unrelated careers <laughs> prior to that. Is uh, worked as like a draftsman and designer for many years. And uh, oh wow, yeah, even as a as a semi pro musician that <laughs> was wasn't particularly good. But uh, <laughs> oh, this is exciting for the yeah, five wire when we get say. to our favorite music uh, question. But uh, wow, yeah, so. Uh, kind of a diverse background, I guess, in a lot of ways. And was yeah. that, uh, not to get too sidetracked, but uh, were you in a, a band or many bands or? No, more of a studio person. Oh, so okay. I did, uh, you know, Muscle did, Shoals type. Sort of, yeah. So I did like uh, <laughs> like studio work. Uh, you know a studio. <laughs> I used to, used to produce what I used to call kind of musical selections. Uh, this was 
back in the day when, so like there's a MySpace and those kinds of things. Right. And, and so, you know, at the time, uh, hip hop was a pretty popular genre of music. And one of the issues that a lot of hip hop artists had was that they, they had to, you know, if you wanted to get a, a like a, a track for your raps or whatever, you're, you're going to need to probably clear some royalties or something if right. you want to use samples. So I play like a bunch of different instruments and I would create music that sounds like something they might have sampled, but it wasn't sampled. It was fully original. So you didn't have to clear royalties or anything. And then I sold those as, you know, prepackaged. Wow. But I didn't make very much money. So, (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's cool. So you were like recreating samples. Yeah. Like it was, uh, I would create these kinds of compositions, if you will, of, of various kinds. Like, you know, they would, people would come to me with a, idea in their head about what they wanted something to sound like, or, or they would just go through my library of things that I, you know, created on my own. And, uh, so yeah, that, I mean, I did that for a couple of years. I didn't, I didn't really make any money to be honest. I was like, it's, it's a really music business in general. is just a really challenging career. And like, also like that niche area of it was pretty hyper specific and extra niche. So, like, right. you know, it's, it's like making a, just compounding the difficulty level of, <laughs> of making a buck in there. Like, so yeah, it was, it was a, it was a fun time, but um, on to other things now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. F- fair enough. Why real estate, Andrew? Yeah, that's a good question. I think on the analytical side of it, you know, for me, it's, it's just like, I like really hard puzzles, you know? So I, I like, I like problems that don't have really obvious solutions to them uh, or analytical projects that could kind of take you weeks or months or years. Like, I mean, honestly, probably in the conversation we have today, you know, there's things that I've been thinking about in this space for 10 plus years that I still have like an evolution of thought on. Real estate's just like a fascinating intersection of so many different uh, facets of life and the economy and all kinds of things. And the reasons that people choose to live where they live and so on or, or how they live and what kind of space and you know whatever these are really interesting dynamic i think they're really interesting from like a data perspective and so on and from a storytelling perspective uh in a more like practical sense of it my family and, and myself was always kind of a family of moving you know houses and renovating them not like not the flipping sort of thing but just you, we just bought a property and we always had this renovation going on like there was always one i grew up around like hammers and nails my whole life right and uh so always really interested in like ways that you can add value to a property or change a property to like a different use and make it you know fit what it is that you want out of it and i kind of continued that tradition uh myself i bought a home and gutted it myself and like doing everything myself. Like, Sounds like you yeah. like puzzles. Yeah. Like, really yeah, yeah. Like complicated puzzles. I like, I like biting <laughs> off way more than I can chew. And then, Expensive and then, puzzles. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's definitely not cheap. Uh, it, and it's, it's harder than a lot of people think. But like, I, again, I really enjoy the puzzles and having a bit of a background in design and, and whatnot in terms of how things work. Like where I might, I'm not an engineer, by the way, I, I just uh, did drafting and design work. So that was uh, more specialized in the mechanical and electrical sides of it. So I would design like, I don't know, restaurant kitchens and so on, like the, the exhaust systems for them and wow. all these other things. Anyways, it kinda, that's a whole other story. But uh, so knowing a lot about those things helps to think through how buildings are structured, how the, you know, how like the mechanical systems and everything integrate into buildings and what you need to do to make sure that everything works and whatever. So it's kind of just an interest of mine. And I like fixing things and 
So marry those things together. And that's part of the real estate bit for me as well. Well, there's a lot of fixing required in this market, I guess. So, <laughs> so, so along those lines, I'm just curious, and I'm not even sure how to frame this question, but you've worked now for the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. You've worked for the provincial government. You've worked for CMHC or Crown Corporation. Yeah. What's your take on how different stakeholders in the Canadian housing space are are communicating with each other? Are they are they communicating effectively? Are they asking similar questions? Are they, do they have similar solutions? Or are, is it totally at odds? Like the thing that you said about being the only economist yeah, at that, the province kind of struck me there. Yeah, I mean, that that's a pretty surprising kind of fact in some ways. I mean, when I started there, well, let me let me kind of answer your question first. I, I think, you know, each stakeholder, if you will, has a pretty different, some of them have very different mandates. Like, you know, the Bank of Canada has a mandate. Uh, CMHC has kind of a mandate given by government of what, what it is they're trying to achieve. Uh, the provincial government, the housing minister has a mandate letter and there's, you know, outcomes that are expected. Working at the board, it doesn't have a mandate per se, but has a, a reason to exist and a function that it plays in the in the space of real estate. All of these stakeholders have kind of similarities and some pretty big dissimilarities in some ways. Uh, I think where a lot of things get off, uh, where there's a lot more like disagreement, I guess, on things is is in the the perspectives about what what are the causes or uh, reasons for the situations that we find in front of us. Uh, you know, it's often the housing issue is often referred to as a housing crisis. Just the language of that itself is a construction of who you are speaking to. You know, uh, the the choice of calling it a crisis is something that, you know, I'm not trying to suggest that it isn't a crisis because for right. many people, it very much is. It just depends on who you're speaking with and what the, you know, what their context is. And so where I think things get really dysfunctional is not understanding what it means when you call it a crisis, what because if you don't, if you can't quite define that or pin it down very well as what what it is that you're saying specifically is the problem, it's hard to design solutions for it that are effective and target the specific segment that you think is the the issue. Right. And there's a lot of disagreement about what the issues are. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of speculation about certain issues that may or may not be issues. Um, and this is just kind of the way that things work. And like I did a presentation on this actually back in January, which is actually on the RebGV website. You can go there. We got Thanks to my RebGV team, I've now got an economics page on the website. So nice. you can find anything that I've done there. And there's a, did like an hour long show, I kind of call it, where it was called Dysfunction by Design. And it's a presentation that discusses kind of the state of the market, uh, what I see as some, being some of the big drivers and some of the big points of disagreement in terms of the context of the discussion of the housing crisis and so on. And it kind of, it's my take on why things are so dysfunctional, why organizations approach the question of the housing crisis from such different angles. And it kind of gets uh, into a lot of those bits in a, in a, I think, a fun and engaging way that, you know, it's a, we've got a lot of data, a lot of charts and kind of bring the audience along with me and discovering what it is and how I think through those kinds of things. So, yeah, I mean, um, it's kind of a long-winded answer, sorry to your question, but it's uh, there's a lot to it. It's a, it's a hard uh, question to unpack. You know? Right, right. But and just just to if you were to give like a three minute uh, and we got all we got all after. <laughs> no, and I don't mean that as, as a, that that was a long answer. I mean, it more like 
you know, it was an hour presentation, dysfunction by design, uh, the synopsis. Can you give us the kind of Cole's notes? Sure. So uh, kind of at like the highest level, I go through, I think, four or five um, kind of major issues, if you will. Like it kind of starts with speaking about the the ideas behind supply and demand and how the kind of, what do you, I don't even know how to describe this, but it's like, it's like the, the, the way that economists tend to think about, you know, all kinds of markets, uh, that often gets reduced to a very simplistic form of something like, you know, supply and demand. And then everybody uses that as the jump off point for a lot of discussions. But I think there's a big missing piece in all of that, in that that discussion is not rich enough to answer the questions that need to be answered. So that kind of sets up the future pieces of the of the show where I start getting into like population growth and like demographic issues and you know policy issues and the 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 issues around the the central bank and and uh, how they operate and how what they're doing has impacts in the the housing market and all that stuff. So it's it's like this big it's kind of hard to give like a two to three minute sure, you know, sure. thing because everything's so intertwined and that's kind of the point of the show is that like at the end of it, you really see how intertwined all these issues are. And you start, hopefully, I mean, my goal with a, with a show like that is that like the viewer comes away thinking like, huh, that's a lot more complicated than I thought it was. And maybe my simple solution that I have for something isn't really as easy to implement as I thought. And like, I'm not trying to discourage people from making, coming up with ideas of how to, how to fix things. Just I'm just trying to encourage people to think about them in a richer way with like a lot more information around it about understanding the context of what it is you're talking about. If you say you've got a solution to something, well, do you really understand the problem? Do you know exactly the nuts and bolts of it? Do you know how that thing operates really well so that your solution, whatever it is you're proposing, actually targets the things that you're trying to hit and Mm -hmm. doesn't hit a bunch of other things unnecessarily? And, you know, so it's kind of, that's what the discussion that I'm trying to get uh, out there with that particular piece. And uh, it was also to set up the forecast that we did in, in January to give like a bit of a you know, high level overview of my thinking about it and why the forecast was put together the way it was. And so, yeah, that's kind of that piece. Again, sorry, not a three minute thing. <laughs> no, 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 that's fascinating. And the two things that kind of strike me, one one from your your earlier answer of talking about how you've been trying to understand the market for or certain questions in the market for, you know, over a decade and how it's been an evolutionary process. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because we talk about that on the show, like how I felt I understood the market in 2015 is dramatically different than how I feel now. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution and, and has it gotten more complicated, your understanding of real estate or has it got more simplistic or yeah, that's a, such a good question. And uh, yeah, I can definitely talk about that. It's uh, so if you'd asked me, you know, back in 2015, 2016, what the driver of our market was, because that was a period of like heightened, you know, activity. That in question the was being asked a lot. It was like, <laughs> what is going on? And honestly, you know, actually yesterday I was looking at some of the data and looking back at it and I was like, yeah, you know, 2014, 2015, 2016 still looks weird from a data perspective. When I look at a chart like that, I see a chart that has some regularity in it and then boom, something hits in 2014. And you're like, what is that? There's something off about that data. It doesn't look right. Something happened that I don't have a full explanation for. And so everybody at the time was searching for explanations everywhere. And so this is where you get the stories of foreign investors and all that kind of thing, because it's not that there's like, look, I look at the population data, you look at some other stuff around that period of time and everything looks pretty normal. 
there's like nothing really totally way off about that period of time, except for the real estate data. Right. Like all of a sudden the inventory of apartments just like tanks. Why? Why did it just get so like dragged down? So in such a sustained form for such a long period of time. And that had big knock on effects on everything in the market that drove prices higher really rapidly. Even the detached market was ripping higher in pricing, even though inventory for it was rising, it's going in a different direction than the inventory for apartment. It's like, what the heck was going like a lot of the things that are supposed to add up weren't adding up. And so I think quite rightfully, a lot of people came to, you know, all kinds of different conclusions about what might be driving it. Now, whether they were correct in what those things actually were, that, you know, it's proven that the foreign buyer issue probably wasn't as big of an issue as people thought. However, you know, the data, we don't have the data going back pre-2016. And at the very first chunk of that, when, you know, there was, uh, when the foreign buyers tax and stuff came in, those first bits of data showed a much higher level of foreign investment activity in the market than it did a few months after, sure. which was obvious because that's the point of the, <laughs> of the, of the of legislation, the tax, right? Yeah. Like sure. that's the point, like the outcome that was observed was exactly what you'd hope. But what we don't have is all the initial, and I'm not, I'm not trying to insinuate that it was for sure foreign buyers. I'm just trying to say that there are data points that kind of exist that when you look at the totality of it and you're trying to explain this particular phenomenon, there just isn't really like a lot of great data points that all add up to some neat little tidy story about what exactly happened and what drove it. And that's, you know, that's definitely where you get the kind of leeway that a lot of people take in in making those uh, declarations about what the cause was, mm-hmm. you know, and it's sort of like, well, I'm always a bit more skeptical about just about everything. Like as a, somebody who's in the data space, like I, you know, I probably surprise a lot of people to hear this, but like, I don't trust data at all. Like I look at, I look at data, I'm like, that's that's BS, that stuff. You know, like right. it's kind of like I have to know exactly how that data was generated for me to have faith in it. And when you start spending the time to like learn the data generating processes of stuff, like even if we talk about real estate market data, like, you know, every month stuff comes in, right? So you, you guys go out, do a bunch of deals, that shows up in the market data. But when the closing times and stuff like those matter for when you count a sale in some particular month or whatever, or like, and there's reasons why something might lapse over the end of the month or something that it probably should have been a sale counted in one month, but it isn't counting it. And like, it might seem like a minor detail, but you start adding this up across the whole spectrum of things and the data starts getting kind of washy under the surface. It's not Mm. as concrete as people believe it to be. And like a lot of data is like that, you know, whether it's stats can data or whatever, there's a ton of data that under the surface of it all really isn't, you know, as true, if you will, as mm-hmm. people think it is. Now, it's, it, it, they are facts, but they have to be interpreted correctly. You have to have the kind of understanding of what is happening underneath it to really get that message across whatever it is you're trying to say, you know. So, um, yeah, it's it, the whole thing with like real estate and all of these data points is like there, there is a there is while there is a lot to look at now, there wasn't 10 something years ago, mm-hmm. or not as much anyways. And the focus on things certainly wasn't as heightened as it used to be. So now, you know, everybody's really trying to grapple with questions of like affordability, why are prices what they are and all these things. And yeah, it's challenging to answer from just like one or two data points. You really got to look at things in this really more holistic perspective, which again, that's kind of part of what I was trying to do in that uh, presentation I did in January is like kind of try to bring a lot more of the pieces together, but I only had an hour and mm-hmm. I could talk for 10 hours about, about that, you know? all the pieces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 
are are you I'm just thinking from what you said, are you confident that the does the does the picture get clearer with more data? Because like and I remember that critique. We're not even we don't know who's buying the real estate. We don't know their nationality or where they're from or whatever back in 2015 or 2014 or whenever that whenever it was. Like with the increased collection of data, do you think this becomes muddier or or is there a a clarity that's emerging. Yeah, I, w- I would say generally more data is, is good. It's welcome. It's certainly welcome to the discussion, especially if it helps to elucidate more better answers about certain phenomenon that like particularly, say, like just use the foreign buyers in this example, right? Like we have decent data on that now that suggests it's not really as much of a driver or a market as, as it was perceived to be back then. Right? Like I said, we don't have the data pre-2016 really. So it's kind of hard to say what exactly was going on there without that. And that's kind of the benefit and curse of more data. It's like, well, the benefit is you could say something concretely about it. But then the curse is that like, you always kind of start wanting more because like, if you don't just settle your explanation at some point and cut it off and say, okay, well, that's enough. I think I know, I think I know roughly what was happening there. Then you kind of always start wanting more. And the more you pick away at something, the more, the more like each like data point starts raising questions about other data points. Like that happens to me all the time. <laughs> I'll look at yeah. something and I'll be like, oh, that's interesting. And then, you know, I'll start digging into it. I'm like, oh, well, why is this happening? And I start digging down another hole. And then like 10 days later, I come out of it with like 10 different stories about things. They're all interesting. And they're things that I'll probably do at some point in some kind of piece somewhere. But, you know, you don't, you ultimately don't even arrive at the conclusion that you were seeking. You just, right. you just end up kind of spinning your wheels even more. But again, that's kind of why I like this business of of real estate and so on. It's it's a fascinating space with so many intersections. And like, you know, if you're a data person and you like hard puzzles, I highly recommend working in this space and trying to like figure things out because, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely short on people with great ideas uh, of how to do better data work in this side of things. Uh, economics historically hasn't done a great job looking at housing issues. It was kind of a tertiary subject in economics wasn't was never really the focus for a lot of economists and so there's there's a dearth of good research and analysis in there to guide discussions that we have today uh so yeah it's it's uh anyway sorry rambling again but it's it's a fascinating space you know i i just wanted to also kind of go back the second thing that you said that's really interesting is kind of cl- getting clarity when we talk about real estate about what we mean and and really identifying the pain points and and going deep to really understand that. We've had a number of people on the show that are in a variety of different sectors of the industry that have talked about David Eby, for example, not to get political, but being a, a bull in a china shop right now with, with the housing plan, making a lot of changes that maybe we don't know what the repercussions are. And you've talked about this. Like if you're not clear, there's going to be spin-off effects. Yeah. How do you think we get clearer? on our collective understanding uh, about about the market so we can actually, like, like, are there steps that we can take to actually get better policy as a result that's maybe, that maybe doesn't have the repercussions like, you know, say, we didn't whatever, that whatever, problem, so the solutions. Well, that's it. And, and, one, yeah. and you think about these, it's always been kind of more the, uh, not so much supply, but focused on, on demand side measures, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where they've had a lot of spinoff effects. Yeah. So uh, as somebody who kind of has worked, like I, I worked in the sausage factory, if you will, and I, I've seen how that's made. And, you know, the way that 
got to be kind of careful the way I phrase it. I don't want to like throw my former employers something under the bus, sure. but like, I'm just trying to be honest with your listeners and you as well. Like, here's, here's my sort of cynical take on it, I guess, if you will. Uh, policy is meant to be evidence-based. Like it's, it's something that as the voting public, when you vote someone in, you hope that those elected officials bring with them the kind of work ethic that would be like, hey, if we're going to implement some big change to something, then we should be able to back up the research with that and justify it. The reality, the way that I see it, and this may not be the case, I got to be careful because this probably is not the case across all sectors of policy and something. But when it comes to like real estate side of it, my view, uh, and this is again, my personal view on this, is that instead of it being, you know, like evidence-based policymaking, it's kind of like policy-based evidence making, you know, like there's sometimes there's ideas that get the attention of the political sphere that are very popular with voters. And those ideas may not actually be the ones that will move the needle the most in the direction that the public, the population wants, but they're, they're great pieces for politicians to go out and, you know, slam the hammer down on or whatever. And they're really probably not going to have a big meaningful impact in the market, but they, they're great sound bites and they're, you know, and sometimes the research, if you will, there, there isn't any, like there's just, there's just somebody, you know, somebody will see something on Twitter and they'll think, oh, hey, I want to know about that. And like, it sounds like it's an issue for housing. We should be doing something about that. And it's like, yeah, then you go look into it and just say, it's not really an issue, but they're like, well, yeah, but people are talking about it on Twitter. So we should probably do something. About that. Sure. And I think like, realistically, if you look at some of the platforms put forth by political parties and stuff, and then you compare that to what you might see on Twitter and things like that, there's a high correlation between what people are talking about on Twitter and what's there. And my point is not that what people are talking about on Twitter isn't real. It is in some ways. For a lot of people, it's real. Are they the issues that have the the biggest potential to move the market or whatever, move the housing discussion in the correct direction? Probably not. I mean, Twitter's not really a great bellwether for almost anything in terms of discussions. And I think that's kind of the problem is that we live in a world where, you know, uh, media and all of this is, is attention hungry and it requires pieces that really grab people. And oftentimes those pieces are not the, the real story. And like, you know, like the real story with housing and it's been the story for a long time is, is the supply issue. And I have thoughts about that as well, but it's a boring story. Right. Like it's not it's not sexy to go out on the radio and talk about, well, we need to add 10,000 more units. It's <laughs> yeah. like, so, you know, yeah. like, it's like, it's, it's what about those though. speculators? Yeah. Right. It's and, like, what about yeah. those? And it's going to take years yeah. to actually produce the housing that yeah. we need. And like, we don't know how to do it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, it's actually a boring and complicated story, I guess. Yeah. Uh, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, maybe shifting gears a little bit because, uh, and I think this will get into, you know, supply and everything else, but how's the market? And we should, we should timestamp. We're talking <laughs> yeah, to we should timestamp April this. 19th, 2023. So I feel like a lot of people are kind of surprised in the spring market. You may or may not be as surprised as a lot, but how how is the market and what's your take? Yeah, it's, uh, these are these are difficult. Like time stamping anything is always the worst because <laughs> you know you're gonna go back. The and, umbrella already time stamped. Yeah, 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 that's, uh, yeah. So it's okay. So the market right now actually is surprisingly uh, doing better than I thought it would in a lot of ways, especially on the pricing side. So we did a forecast in January, and when I did that forecast, it uh, it called for price growth. 
And I think at the time, you know, like there was still some uncertainty whether we we're going to have more rate hikes and, and whatnot and you know, where the economy's at. That was still, actually, that still is a kind of a big question mark because it's a bit odd, right? We have unemployment at very low levels. I think like under the surface, everything on the data side of it, everything looks kind of okay from the, from the economy sort of perspective of it. But there's all these other like little weird data points here and that flash kind of danger signs at, at, on occasion, like yield curves and whatever. Those those are sometimes indicate uh, an imminent recession. But like the market, based on all that, you know, it's surprising. You got you got a huge increase in in the policy rate from the Bank of Canada it's just over a really short period of time, and uh, that's obviously translated into higher mortgage costs, and you know, has the exact effect that you would expect in the market. Huge, huge decrease in sales. And like also, you know, 2021 and 22 were pretty crazy years in some ways. They're like outliers in the data in, a lot, in, in some senses, right? You look at the sales figures for them, like they were pretty strong years in, in some seg- sections of it. So comparing, you know, today to those periods of time is always rough because it's like, oh, sales are down 50 something percent. It's a big number. And it sounds really scary. But yeah, looking at it, it's like given what's happened with interest rates and so on and where we are, that's a surprisingly resilient number that I like for someone like me who looks at the data a lot. I'm like, well, that's actually kind of surprising that it's doing as well as it's doing. Then on the pricing element of it, like I, so I got to the board and started working with their data and, and built these forecasting models for it. And I'm, I'm not a huge uh, fan of forecasting, to be honest. It's just sort of like a something you do because it's part of the organization and like, you know, we want to get that out to the public. And I think it's meaningful in some ways, but it's it's hard to get it right. And so I built all these models that try to help figure this out. But one of the interesting things about all these models I built, the one thing they kept picking up on uh, was the severely low level of inventory. And because of that, every single one of the models I was running wanted to drive prices higher. It was saying, you know, in the future, because your inventory level is so low, you have like this really high probability that prices will rise. And I was like, well, yeah, but the thing is, you've got the interest rate scenario uh, butting up against that, right? So you have to kind of weigh these things. And so what I ended up doing in the forecast is I kind of, you know, by hand brought the the price forecast down saying, oh, I don't know if it's going to go as high as what my model was saying. And it, so far, we're actually beating where the model was, or oh, like, we're, we're like heading wow. to where the model was supposed to be. And we're, we're above the forecast already in terms of price, which was modest. I was saying like one to 2% growth, but a lot of people were like, no, the bottom's not in, this is Armageddon and whatever. Yeah, yeah. Know, it's like, well, nah, not really. Like, I think the, the bottom was in somewhere around the, the win- like middle of winter or something like November. that. November. Yeah, it kind of, it seemed like uh, things were starting to turn at that point, like in a positive direction. And yeah, so the the pricing things really kind of surprised me a bit because I was hesitant to put out a forecast that was calling for significant price growth, even though, you know, like the underlying issue, which all the models were picking up on is the inventory story. Like we're, we're really low. Like this, the, the Greater Vancouver region has a lot of people. It grows every year. We have more and more people here, but somehow the inventory levels keep kind of dropping, right? Like you, you would think with new housing construction coming online and all these new people moving here that more people might move and you might get more listings and things mm-hmm. on the market here. You'd think there'd be some kind of correlation with growth, but it's kind of, there is, but it's in the opposite direction. You have growth and then you have a decline, decline. In, in the listing counts and so on. And like, that makes sense from the the perspective of, well, you're kind of running out of supply is what it's saying in a way, right? Like if you if you keep growing the population, but you don't grow the housing stock, eventually like listings and everything's just going to kind of lock up because nobody's going to want to move anywhere. There's like, there's nowhere to go, right. you know? 
So that's the part that's been driving the pricing higher and like on the, you know, on the ratios like sales to active listings and all that, or you can flip it and do months of inventory or whatever. You know, those are, those are definitely suggesting continued price growth because they're kind of verging into that seller's, seller's market. market territory, right? And like those, I got to be careful with those because we're going to be doing a project on that this year that I'm hoping to do at the board where like all of those should really be like sales to active listing ratios and those buyers and sellers markets, they should be calibrated on a per market basis. Like it's not the best to use one ratio for everywhere because it actually tends to vary. Like when you dig into the numbers mm-hmm. and you say like, well, at what ratio ratio do prices actually start rising? It can vary a little bit by area or product type and so on. So what I want to do as a project is is kind of unpack that and create like a set of data for people to use where it's like, oh, well, here's the correct ratio for your market. And it'll adjust over time. It it it, it evolves over time as new data comes in and so on. So uh but yeah, it's been interesting just to see how the market shifted towards that seller side of it um, almost everywhere. Um, and yeah, I guess I, I guess it, it still continues to surprise me a bit that pricing is moving up with rates being where they're at. You know, it's it's expensive to to borrow right now. It's so interesting because I feel like you know if if somebody was to say what's the story what's the story in the real estate market? It's interest rates, right? It's been that way for a year and and potentially you know, since 2010 or whatever, you know, with the low interest rates, like that's been a huge driving factor that a lot of people talk about. But this, if you were to write a headline for 2023, is it an interest rate story or so far, I guess, or is it an inventory story? Hmm. Yeah. So definitely an inventory story, I would say. I mean, the rate story is super important, but right now you have this lack of new listings, which is another thing I want to kind of dig into. I don't have a great answer for this, honestly, right now. Why are listings, new listings so low? Well, the anecdotal take is that, you know, people don't have a place to go. Like if you're a seller, you're like, well, I don't have a spot picked out. I'm not going to list. And with borrowing costs being what they are, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines and whatever until market conditions improve, which I think is a perfectly plausible story or whatever. But I'm always skeptical of data and stories. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm always like, well, what, is there something more to it? Is there something else that I can point to as a point of interest or something. And I haven't found that yet, but it is an interesting dynamic. And I think it's one that's going to continue to play out into the end, end part of the year. And I think actually on the topic of that forecast, I think that's going to be one of the features that causes the, the sales forecast we have to be maybe be a bit lower than we were calling for. Because right now, where the models thought the market would be in terms of inventory and new listings, it's not quite there. It's below that. And mm-hmm. so it's harder for the sales to accumulate when you just don't have people listing. It's hard to sell what you don't have kind of thing, right? So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, that's I, I don't think it's a dire picture on sales per se. I think it's it's actually doing better than some years that we've had. I think we're beating 2019 or something on a, on a year-to-date basis right now and maybe a few other years or something. So it's not the worst we've ever had, uh, which is kind of surprising given the rate scenario, right? Like it's like that's probably one of the worst scenarios we've had in a really long time on the rate side of it. So that is to me, you know, it speaks a lot about it's Vancouver, not just Vancouver, British Columbia in general. We see this similar pattern unfolding in a lot of markets across uh, BC and it's just people. Our region continues to grow. We don't have a huge amount of new product coming to market. And even when we do, it takes time for it to get there. We have really tight rental markets. It just all adds up to a picture of like, more people coming, not enough for everybody. And there's really only one way 
things go when that's the this, this story, right? There might be temporary deviations from a longer term trend, but you know, the longer term trend is pretty hard to break in this case. So, so one thing I'm just thinking about, I've had two conversations that uh, stick out to me in, in relation to what we're talking about. One is a client of mine said, when this and his property was listed, he said, when the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, he said, good news. And it was a, clearly in relation to the Bank of Canada and what they were going to do and, yeah. and how that impacts interest rates. And I was thinking, it's so funny how our real estate market's almost like in bizarro world where like bad news for the global economy, even the Canadian economy potentially is good news if you're yeah. a seller in Vancouver real estate. And then and, uh, the second one was I had a conversation with somebody yesterday who said, I'm really concerned, I'm thinking about listing, I'm really concerned about a recession in the latter half of 2023. And again, it, it made me think about interest rates. But I guess, and and potentially that not having the impact that he thinks. And I'm wondering, like, I guess, two questions. One is, if we did go into a recession, how do you think, do you think that leads to more inventory? How do you think that actually plays out in this market do or i guess recession or the the idea of people having to renew at higher rates and suddenly there being a glut of inventory like how does that play out yeah so great question uh that's that speaks to one of the things that i find very interesting about our market um so first of all in terms of the recession uh, you know the jury's still out on that like all the economic indicators right now aren't like flashing hot red signals saying, oh, this is definitely a recession. Right. However, there are some other things like inverted yield curves been inverted for months now, like maybe even over a year. And like usually a recession happens within, I don't know, six to 12 months of that happening. It hasn't quite happened yet. And like we don't, you know, so we're still kind of waiting on economic data to confirm that it's maybe the recession that never comes or something. It's one everybody talks about, but never comes. Maybe. I don't know. Um, and then on that, like, does that cause a flood of inventory if we get a recession? Well, that ties into the jobs picture and the notion of that people's uh, ability to own their home or pay for their home is directly tied to their jobs, which it is for like a lot of people. However, in in British Columbia and actually across Canada, there's, you know, the data from census and stuff shows that like there's a lot of there's a lot of people who don't have mortgages on their properties. So you know, there's like, I don't know, I think it's like 40% of Canadians or something are mortgage-free or something like that. And that's, that's a really high percentage of people. Now, they tend to be older. Uh, many of them are retired and whatnot, so they're not even in the labor force. So there's really like no impact on that segment, really, from an economics perspective, if you're talking about a recession. It's like, well, you know, if you're on a fixed income, you're older, you're retired, your house is paid off, you get, you know, checks from the government. Mm-hmm. Well, there's not really much to talk about yeah. there, right? But then you move to that other side of the market where people are employed and so on, and they they need to afford their homes and make the payments. And one of the interesting things about that that I've been digging into, and I'll probably do a piece about it for the board or something at some point. So there's data that shows like the amount of mortgage outstanding uh, by household uh, in, in the region. And you get into this kind of interesting discussion around it where you can segment this data by first-time buyers or people who are not first-time buyers. And you know, in the discussions around Vancouver real estate, people, or not just Vancouver, BC in general, or anywhere where the price is high, Toronto even, you get these comments that are like, oh, well, it's so expensive. And the minute that something breaks, everybody's going to be just shattered and the economy, because, you know, there's no way that the average income can afford a $2 million house. 
yeah, well, you know, <laughs> you turn that, you look at the data and you look at how much mortgage debt is outstanding across all these houses. It doesn't add up to a story of like imminent doom and gloom. A lot of people have very reasonable, easily serviceable mortgages based on the incomes that they have. And think about it from a, just a perfectly rational and logical perspective. You, you take one of your clients to the bank to get a mortgage. They don't give you however much money you ask for, right? Sure. They, they say, oh, what's your income? And what's your job? Is it steady? And what other assets do you have? And how much is your down payment? And so on. And these factors. And then they stress test. And then they stress test you, right? So the data in a lot of ways is not surprising at all about the distribution of mortgage debt across the economy and and across households, because it's a function of lending standards of underwriting. It's like the reason why it's not such a huge, risky, dangerous thing is because there was good underwriting behind a lot of these mortgages. Now, Yes, if you have an, eco- an economy that goes into the tank and there's job losses, some segment of the population is going to probably have to sell their homes. Historically, we've had a couple kind of big recessions in Canada, and it hasn't led to some absolute tsunami of supply or, or inventory, if you will, on the market that's caused dramatic price crashes. The, the last one, actually, I just did a video on this one. It's kind of cool. Uh, looking at every interest rate tightening cycle in history, and then relating that to like what happened to prices and sales. And there's like a really interesting dynamic there where not every uh, historical tightening cycle was associated with a decline in sales, nor a decline in prices. There's some where prices actually increased in the face of these tightening cycles and so on. So now tightening cycles are different than recessions, though. So they're not the same. Sometimes they're, they happen at the same time or very near mm-hmm. each other, uh, but they are not the same thing. So uh, but anyways, that's kind of what we're going through right now. We have this big increase in rates and you know, everybody's like, well, when's the next shoe going to drop? And it's like, uh, I don't know if it will. You know, we have a pretty strong underwritten market underneath of all of it. You've got a lot of intergenerational wealth transfers happening in our area. You know, it's, 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 it's pretty sound under the hood, at least as far as I can tell, you know, from the data that I look at. I have a hard time seeing those catastrophe scenarios materialized in any kind of short order, really. It's, uh, it's hard to imagine. Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution.
We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. That's kind of the the realization I think we've both come to after, you know, doing this show for seven years that's kind of changed is, is, there seems to be a strong foundation, uh, you know, at the base of it. But I, yeah, I feel like people don't talk about the bubble as much as they they did, right? As they used to in yeah. 2015, 2016, per se. But the the other thing I just to kind of because the inventory question, and you said you were talking about how the rental market's tight and about how there's nowhere really to move. And anecdotally speaking, you know, we work with a lot of people that want to sell their house and move up in the market. But it's just so painful right now to do so that they'd almost rather do anything than try to make that move and they stay put. And we've talked about like, will will good news in the market, like like the media getting behind, like the real estate markets back, will that trigger new inventory? The other thing I'm thinking about is, does inventory trigger more inventory? Like, because it becomes, you know, like with... Would like the maybe more the rental market not being so tight, more options for people so that it doesn't just seem like it's such a a chore to actually leave your existing residence, right? Yeah, great. Yeah, that's actually, yeah, you just twig something in my brain for an analytical project that I'll do at some point. (laughs) There's there's something really kind of interesting there, right? Like, I think there is maybe some kind of critically low level of inventory where it becomes a bit of a self fulfilling you know, uh, cycle of people saying, well, I'm not going to list because no one else is listing or whatever. But that's like, pro- there's probably some levels where that starts to occur. I mean, I obviously I don't have data on people's psychological, sure. uh, you know, mm-hmm. state of mind when they're making these, but like, I, maybe there's a way to pull some kind of inter- something interesting out of the data to show that, hey, when you hit these levels, uh, new listings tend to stall or something like that for a while. And maybe there's some kind of correlation there. So yeah, it could be possible that you get a, a and in, like I was hoping in the in the spring market that we actually would see a lot more people coming to market with their properties. It's one of the things that's been surprising me a little bit. Uh, you know, I think the Bank of Canada's certainty that they've provided, or sort of certainty, as much as they <laughs> normally provide certainty, it's like they're saying, well, you know, we're we're mostly done with rate hikes for now, unless some kind of you know situation unfolds where inflation just takes off again and they need to just ramp up rates again to, to cool that. It doesn't seem to be evolving that way. It seems like they're going to hold rates where they are. And I think that's starting to bring a lot more confidence into the market, which I don't think was quite there in January and February. Now that we're into like March, April, I think that message is starting to sink into the market. And I do think the next few months are probably going to bring more buyers and sellers to the the space. It's definitely stabilized, right? We used to have a question and we were asking everybody like, is this the hardest moment to forecast that you've ever had? You know, <laughs> It does. It of, seems less difficult. No, it's, difficult it's less difficult for sure. I would. Yeah. I would guess unless there's some sort of black swan event. That, yeah. I mean, that's really it. I think like those are always possible. Like, uh, you know, I I do always say anything can happen and stuff because I think COVID's just such a great example. If you were talking to somebody, you know, pre 
March 2020 and like you were interviewing somebody, what do you think is going to happen? It's like nobody would have said, hey, a global pandemic. We we literally have, go back on the record. We have Go go back to March 2020. There's a great episode about that. (laughs) So, yeah. yeah, So it's like, you know, I think that it's such a great, I mean, it's horrible that it's happened, but it's a great reminder of just how fragile forecasts are and so on. They're like, they're really, it's your best guess at the time and given what you have. And uh, yeah, right now it does feel a lot more stable with the, with also the latest inflation prints are like quite encouraging. Mm -hmm. It's really starting to show that like, yeah, core inflation is still a little bit sticky, but whatever. It'll, it seems to be coming down and it's coming down kind of along the path that the Bank of Canada had predicted, which is kind of unusual, honestly. Like like said, they'll stick the landing potential. Yes, it's like it's, everybody was like, can they do a soft landing? Yeah. I don't know. It's like, and if they do, it'll probably be one of the first ones in history or something. I, right. I, I struggle to think of one where they've pulled this off better so far. And, you know, I, I, think, I think it is working uh, according to plan so far. And I, I'm hopeful that that encourages people to get out there and, and make those moves and make the move up because... It, you know, if you're growing family or something, it's tough to be in a space with like small space and so on. So, yeah. I don't know if we were recording when we talked about this, but um, one of the things that you said earlier on, Andrew, was that, you know, there's a lot of voices that kind of share similar thoughts, but in some cases you kind of deviate from some of the some of the stronger voices in our market. Can we talk a little bit about maybe some of the takes in our industry or or other economists or even in the mainstream media that like how how um wh- where do you see your yourself um being a different voice? Yes. Yes. Great question. Um. So just to preface this, this isn't any kind of slight against anybody that like I'm not going to mention any names or anything, but there's certainly people and voices in the space that I don't fully subscribe to, and there's popular ones and so on. And I, like it's just from my personal experience uh, of the work that I've done over the years. I, I forgot to mention I worked at Altus Group back in the day as a, a consultant doing. Uh, economic consulting and, oh, and appraisal oh. work. Totally forgot about that. Jeez. <laughs> Anyways, like it was like a couple of years of my life, yeah. but somehow kind of uh, just glossed over that chunk of it. <laughs> but it was so that actually that experience was really super valuable. And I'm so like uh, ever grateful for all the people at Altus that you know had me had me come in there and work with them. I learned a huge amount over a really short period of time. And what I learned a lot about that I didn't you know, I was an economist before that at CMHC. And so you take this very macro view of things, right? Like, oh, yeah, it's all macro economy things. It's all whatever, these big aggregate variables that are moving the economy around and influencing housing and so on. That's an interesting take. And it's one that a lot of people still subscribe to. And I don't harbor any kind of, you know, resentment against somebody who continues to think that. However, uh, in my experience working on the consulting side of it and, you know, selling market studies and stuff to developers and whatever who would come in and they would say, well, I'm proposing this project here. I want to do X number of units and we want to know, we want to know like, what's the, what's the risk essentially? Like what's coming down the pipeline? What's in the, you know, what's the competitive product? How should we, how should we position this? How should we phase it? Right. That's like the phasing thing is just like where I think it's a, a very clear example of how the aggregate thought of how economists and a lot of those strong voices in this milieu of things that we deal in, uh, it's like glossed over. It's like, oh, well, if we just, all you have to do is move supply, right? You just have to shift that supply curve out. And it's like, well, it doesn't quite work that way from like the development side of it. Because when like you look at it from a, if you're an individual developer, you go and look at it and you're like, well, yeah, it'd be nice if we could all 
in aggregate move this supply curve out. We all join hands and we, you know, compete together to make this market more affordable. (laughs) But like the reality is like, hey, they're businesses, you know, and like they can't all come out at the same time building huge amounts of supply, flooding the market and pushing down prices. And that's why, I mean, it's part of the reason why developers phase developments, right? You you don't sell all of your project, your product immediately dumping it into the market as, you know, it's not good for your your performer, right? right? Like it's, Supply shock. Almost. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Well, it's and it's, you're, it's not some kind of weird collusion thing or something like that. It's like, I want to really make the point that it's, it's because the production of housing from the private sector is a business. And it's not fair or correct to look at that side of the industry, point fingers and say, well, they need to be doing more to make housing more affordable. It's like, well, do you go to work and like get less money when you come home? Because that's kind of what you're asking. <laughs> that's literally what you're asking people to do in the yeah. development industry. And it kind of gets me a little bit, you know, fired up because like I used to work at the government and like that is the position of a lot of people that's like, well, we just need to make sure the bloody developers are doing more to it. And it's like, no, no, you do, like you don't get it. Like it's it's about making sure the numbers work. If you de-risk projects and you make things like a lot easier, yes, you'll get more supply. Will you get enough to flood the market and bring prices down? Probably not. That's a point where I think I differ from a lot of the kind of other voices in there that I, you know, I, I'd be willing to put money on it that like we could, we could upzone all of Vancouver tomorrow. I don't care. Like go to a hundred floors. I don't care. Whatever. I'd be willing to put money down that you could, if you did that and you had shovels in the ground tomorrow, you wouldn't get enough supply to like push prices down, I don't know, 40% or 50%, whatever the number is to get to that quote affordable level of housing. Because the numbers from a development side of it, they don't make sense after a while. You can't keep paying a high price for land and selling your end unit product at prices that don't justify the cost you paid for the land plus development costs. You just, you can't do that sustainably. Now, in some kind of aggregate sense, like maybe, you can get a lot of developers kind of competing with each other and so on to, you know, bring things down over time. But you're talking about like 10, 20, 15 year timelines, maybe to get like prices down 10, 15 percent under the most ideal of circumstances, you know, where cities are getting out of the way and whatever. It's like I have I really struggle to see, you know, a, a very sound rationale of how that's exactly supposed to work. I know it's like a very popular uh, movement right now. I, I mean, the political space and so on, like the, the latest provincial government plan is definitely looking at, you know, upzoning single family neighborhoods and all that, which great. I'm not, I'm not against doing more development, definitely due to more development. There's tons of communities that are dying and they need more mm-hmm. life injected to them and all that. I just think it's, it's a bit disingenuous to sort of frame that policy and those kinds of policies as like the kind of thing that's going to be a magic bullet that brings affordability back to people who are you know, say earning 30,000 a year and like, well, I want, I want to earn 30,000 a year, but I want that downtown condo, yeah, right? Sure. Kids. You know, it's exactly, I think there's has to be a bit of an honesty around the discussion around it in terms of what expectations we might actually see or the, the outcomes we might actually see from big dramatic shifts in policy like that. And I think that's kind of where I differ with some of the voices because it's like, it may not be the case that I actually disagree with any of those folks. Like if I had discussions with them, it may just be that, there's sometimes the way that people, uh, they want to get their message out. So they use more mm-hmm, sensational mm-hmm. Uh, ways of spinning whatever it is they're saying to like make it more uh, you know, popular with people, right? So and whether that's politicians or, you know, individuals with some kind of particular angle or something. So 
Interesting. So if I understand that the logic there, though, is because we've had a number of people on over the years who have talked about, you know, Minneapolis's rezoning a couple of years ago that was very popular amongst a certain subset of the the folks that are looking at the housing shortage in various areas of North America. But the logic is no matter what, it's it's kind of a it's a business where there a it just takes a, a huge amount of time to build new product, but but b with a pro forma, the numbers have to make sense. And if they don't make sense, as we've seen in the last year or two, everybody hits pause and the, there's a trickle out. And it's so that that as a silver bullet, like we have too many single family homes in Vancouver, right? You hear that all the time. Yeah, maybe we do. But the idea that upzoning those single family homes is going to make any meaningful change in the next decade or two, you're saying is is wishful thinking. Uh, yeah, I would say it's it's a bit, it, it's wishful in the sense that there's a lot more happening than just the zoning question. So, you know, what we observe today right now in terms of housing prices and everything that we have around us is not just a function of zoning. Zoning makes some portion of it and perhaps a very meaningful portion of it in some specific areas much more than others too, right? It might be the case that in some area, zoning is the only thing holding back supply, but it could be in other areas that it has nothing to do with Mm -hmm. what's holding back supply. Like I can think of sites, I'm not going to name them, but I can think of sites that exist that are large, they're zoned already, and there's a housing crisis in quotes, and they're not being developed. And they could unleash like thousands of units into the market instantaneously right. if they could build it faster, but it's, it's built, it's got the applications, it's gone yeah, they the could city. build it if they, they want They could to. build it if they want to, and they don't. And that, and it's not, again, I'm not trying to point fingers at the development industry or something like that. It's a business, mm-hmm. right? And you, as develop, and I think this is another point where I differ in my thinking about development and all of that than a lot of other traditional economists, like economists will talk about housing like they're widgets. Developers don't talk about housing like they're widgets. They're projects. They're things that have meaningful legacies and lasting impressions on people. These are houses for people. The, every one of them is different. There's somebody who's going to have their kid in there. They're going to, you know, find out their parent died in one of those, you know, whatever, right? right? Like life happens in these spaces. Mm-hmm. Developers, by and large, don't think of houses as widgets per se. And like that is fundamentally one of the big issues of why the little kind of supply and demand framework of, you know, Econ 101, a lot of people like to paint it as, it's why that doesn't, that model doesn't really apply precisely to the the housing market as we know it. It, it, Houses are not widgets. They're not all the same thing. If they were, well, maybe that logic of little supply and demand model actually holds a bit more weight, but because they're not, it actually operates under a different model that you don't learn in Econ 101 usually. It's uh, it's imperfect competition and, and probably the most accurate kind of model for that from the economics language of things, it it would be like monopolistic competition. And that's not to say that it's a full-on monopoly thing. There's still competition. It's just that under a perfect competition regime with the classical Econ 101 thing, what happens is is in that model, the, the assumption is that developers could produce as much as they want almost infinitely, and it'll all sell into the market instantaneously, and it'll be absorbed like right away. And you can, it's just like limitless. There's infinite demand, essentially. That's what the canonical little model of that, uh, one of the big assumptions of it. But in reality, it doesn't work that way. Developers make decisions about how much to produce contingent on how much other developers are producing in the market. And so 
there's a, a constraint there built into the, the limit, if you will, on how much the development community will build. And it's not even developers. It's actually, I would take it a, a you know, one rung back is, is that it's lenders. Lenders are risk averse. Right. And they're not good. Like developers would be happy to roll the dice with a project if they could get the free money. <laughs> you know? uh, so, but the lenders, no, you know, that's what those reports I used to do at Altus and stuff where they were usually to satisfy a lender that who wanted to know that, hey, the project's like sound, it's got proper demand for it, it'll sell well, or it'll be rented up, leased up quickly. And, you know, there's all those kinds of questions that need to be answered. And I think the the simple little supply demand thing, it starts to get into a world where, oh, all houses are widgets and all we have to do is flood the market with widgets and then everybody's happy because prices fell. And it's like, it's just, sorry, the, <laughs> that's just not reality. It's not a model that I think is well-suited to describing reality as we see it. And I think that is one of the big hindrances and discussions at the policy level of things where, you know, organizations like CMHC and stuff that I used to work at, like that's how things are thought of to some degree is that houses are these aggregate things and it's just units that people live in. We just got to match people to units. But people don't live in units. They live in homes, you know, like it's your house. Like it's like, it's, it's like your space, you know, it's like, there's like lots of really deeply personal things about it. People aren't indifferent about that unit or that unit. They're mm-hmm. extremely particular about that unit or that unit, you know, like right. you go take a client to like a, a, you know, a new condo tower or something, and you could have the exact same floor plan, exact same finishes, everything. And you go up one floor and they're like, yeah, I like this one more. And it's like, why? I mean, it's like basically looking at the exact same thing by all, from an, <laughs> from an, an economist yeah. perspective of it, they would say, well, it's just a unit. They're the same unit. Yeah. No, not to a, not to a client. Definitely not. There's something very personal about the space. It's just the way that the light hits or whatever it might be, something that you can't quite convey. And those things matter, I think, in a very big way in the discussion around real estate and how you make it more affordable. Supply is absolutely part of the answer to that. I don't think there's any serious answer that doesn't involve dramatically in, increasing the amount of homes that we have available. But I think it also has to be a realistic discussion about, you know, how much supply is possible to produce from the private sector, uh, not just from the the feasibility side of it, but also, you know, the practical elements, jobs, you know, how many, how, do you got enough labor to do it? What about materials and things, right? Like the costs of things, you, if everybody starts building really quickly together, that drives costs up because everybody's competing for the same labor pool, same materials. There's all these things that start mm-hmm. happening that make it very challenging for the little you know, simple supply and demand model to unfold as theory predicts. And so that's, I think, my very long-winded uh, way of kind of differentiating myself from some of the other voices there. It's like, look, I'm not trying to be crass about it or harsh or like, you know, disappointing to people who might be hoping that there's, you know, some kind of policy over the horizon that's going to make life or buying a home or something achievable for them. I'm just trying to be realistic about it where it's like, if you're somebody sitting there hoping that next year the government's got a policy that's going to make, you know, uh, you able to afford a home that you want, I think it might be sensible to start considering other options, you know, like, uh, and realistic ones, right? Because it's not going to make your life better to sit around and complain about, oh, it's so unaffordable and whatever. Not that everybody's a complainer, just like, it's, yeah. you know, it's it's not good for your soul to sit around feeling awful about your housing situation. And if you have options available to you, I think it's really important to try to exercise those because like, I don't think there's like a knight in shining armor over the horizon that's just going to come swoop in, make housing super affordable next year. And even if you have great policies that 
that do things, it takes a long time to bring, you know, new product to market. It really does. And yeah. so I, I know it's such a depressing kind of sour sounding well, thing, it's, but it's like, I'm not. Yeah. One know? thing we haven't ever talked about is just how important the underwriting is. <laughs> yeah. It's unbelievable yeah. uh, to, to put it in that context. And, and yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing that, that really comes to mind is outside of policy, like, do you see the government having a role in supply creation? And is that a feasible, uh, it sounds like it's not a feasible expectation, but yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah I mean, that's... one, one famous comment on our show was, uh, at the time John Horgan was, was John Horgan couldn't build a dog house. Um, <laughs> But, you know, and I'm not sure if Davey, David Eby could either, yeah, but yeah. Uh, the point is, is the development community does it well. They know yeah. what they're doing. They know yeah. what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, and that's the that's the key. You really got to, I think if you want to get more market supply, you definitely have to make policies that move the needle in that direction. And that takes understanding what are the levers that the private development market finds most you know, painful and mm-hmm. zoning is certainly one of them, but there's a lot of other, I think GST on rental. I was just going to say, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. And like today yeah. there's like, you know, CMHC is announcing like increases to their lending program. Right. Their I rates. saw that. And like that's just like, that's insult to injury on a, you know, a, a situation where like rental, you do a rental performa, you look at it. Like, I don't, I don't know why people build rental. Honestly, it scares the, you know, whatever out of yeah. me. Like I look at those numbers. I'm like, man, the margins are thin on that. That's a, sketchy game and maybe i'm just really bad at modeling it from a performance side of it but it concerns me when i look at that and you're like well how's it going to work with higher rates plus now like higher lending costs from there it's like it's just not gonna that's not gonna translate to you know more product and uh, that really worries me and like from the government side of it like that's i think that's kind of you know the 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 terminus of my logic really is that i don't see a realistic scenario for the private market to deliver sufficient supply to say if if sufficient is defined as you know bringing home prices down 50% or something like from a supply effect right i don't think that's a realistic possibility in any short period of time that might be possible over 50 years or something like that but that's not the time scale that most people voting mm-hmm. governments in on housing policy issues want if you're a, you know somebody right now who feels shut out of the housing market and you're voting for a politician who's claiming they're going to do something about it i mean you're asking for a home tomorrow not 25 years from now and so like i said the kind of end point of my kind of logic on that is really well it, you get to the point where you have to say government is really the only entity that will build at a loss. And what that loss is, it's called the subsidy. When government builds at a loss, that is directly taking taxpayer money and putting it back into the community in some other form. It's redistributive. That's what the role of government is. Now, then you get to the political discussion of it. Do we collectively as a society of voters collectively agree to vote in a government who's proposing spending enormous amounts of money on developing, you know, sub below market housing or whatever it might be. Do we collectively agree to that? Because what that's going to mean for many of us is significantly higher taxation rates on all kinds of things, whether it be your property or your income tax or whatever, you got to fund it somehow. And the money's not going to come from sky, you know, like it's, it's got to come from somewhere. And so that's where you get into that political issue where, you know, I think a lot of voters, as much as they want to see affordability improve and everything, when it comes to your own pocketbook, it's sort of like, well, yeah. I'll do it up to the point where it doesn't hurt me too bad. You yeah. know? Exactly. So, 
And should people in Victoria be concerned about Vancouver or whatever? You know, I mean, I, I think the other thing, it's interesting, but the, your, your, your take on the pro forma on the, uh, on the market rentals, it's interesting that right now it seems like we're a lot of people in the media are demonizing like REITs has been a, like, that's actually the well, one, no, the one David model. Eby is well, David Eby specifically, not, yeah. but it's, it's unbelievable because you think about it, like, you know, we had Wendy Waters on recently and like her take on it was like, the only reason REITs will do this is because of the 10 to 20 year forecast. Cause, cause they're looking at the same numbers you're looking and they're, they're scratching their yeah. head going like, like this doesn't this, make this better sense be a today. growth area. Yeah. Here. Yeah. They're betting in the region. Right. So it's like, it seems like, you know, you could be leveraging or, or incentivizing. Uh, meanwhile, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's the, it's the latest, uh, uh, you know, person boogeyman, yeah. boogeyman yeah. or whatever. It's, right. I, I, yeah, it, that's a really, um, that's a brutal one because, you know, the, like, like you said, the re- or what, I'm sure Wendy's, knows exactly what she's talking about. I mean, she definitely deals in that space and probably knows more than I do about it. But I think it's incredibly uh, important that you actually invite that kind of money to the rental side of it. And I know like, oh, somebody probably listening to this is like, oh, the guy from the real estate board saying, oh, you got to yeah. bring and in you know, corporate money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and trust me, like, I worked for the government and I worked for the so-called good guys at some point, you know what I mean? Like trying to make things affordable. And I can tell you, that it's it's perceived over there that, you know, well, it, it depends on who you talk to, but like there's certainly been messaging from fairly prominent voices in the advocacy space for housing in, in our region who have demonized REITs and so on. And it, and it comes uh, at a tremendous cost, in my view, because those institutions are the few that exist that are willing to take low yield, stable cash flows. And they're like, you know, a private investor would not be going into like a, like, look, a bond's at like whatever, four or 5% right now. Why would you go into a rental project yielding 3% on a going in rate or something? Even if you can jack rents over time, you know, like you, you can't do it right away. There's, there's tenancy laws mm-hmm. and all kinds of things. You can't just walk in, kick everybody out and whatever, like under a demoviction scenario. But those are, as much as that's like claimed to be a thing, it's not really a thing. Like there isn't, there isn't that many like uh, REITs going around vacating entire buildings to right. like renovate because there's a huge cost to renovate an old building like that. You don't want to kick out the income in place on it. You just bought it with income in place. Like you, yeah. don't, you don't want to get rid of your income stream that you literally just paid money for. It's like right. if you wanted a vacant building, just go buy one, you know, like it's like, I don't know. So anyways, like it's it's crazy to me that like that's even considered like a, a sound like thought around the thing. It's just like, man, you know, REITs are super important to that space and they're going to become even more important as we have an aging population that's going to need that retirement income that they're pending. You know, they're, they're, sure. you know, they really need, like we have a huge aging population and that whole segment of the population is going to need money coming to them. And that money's got to come from somewhere. And those rental projects, uh, those are great. Uh, streams of income for REITs and pension funds and things like that because they're stable. And those funds as well, they're guided by various uh, regulations and things of what they can invest into and what how much they can invest and what they can do. So it's not as like Wild Westy as it sounds too, you know, when you when you just say, oh, REITs and pension sure. funds, it's like they're not really they're not like BlackRock or something yeah. like, you know, like they're, <laughs> yeah. they're way more tame from a, you know, investment side of things. I mean, you look at like all of the underwriting and due diligence and everything they have to do before they even enter into the various investments. It's like, you start seeing this other side of it where like, they're, not, they're like, no, we're, 
we're genuinely investing in these projects for long-term stable cash flows. Yes, we will probably increase rents over time by the maximum allowable increase. And yes, we will probably reinvest in these buildings and hold them for longer periods of time. And then hopefully, you know, they'll redevelop them and build more units out of them, which would be ideal. Of course, it sucks for the tenants in place, but look, the region's growing and you got to you gotta open up the housing supply somehow and it can't all be greenfield. And I mean, there definitely needs to be good policies in place to deal with that issue of, you know, tenants in place and whatever. But, you know, a lot of the older rental stock in Vancouver is occupying primo development land for more rental. Sure. So it's like something's got to give, you know, and like there's a, you know, a rental, I I can't remember what they're calling it, but like a a $500 million fund for buying up old rental or something like that. And I mean, in one sense, it's a good idea because like, you know, you're protecting what they're calling affordable rental, right? But the reason it's affordable is like, because the buildings are kind of old and not great. And also that the tenants in place have had rent control in place. And if the unit were to turn over, it wouldn't be quote affordable instantaneously, but Regardless, the point is, like, I don't know how helpful that policy is in a kind of aggregate sense where it's like, yeah, on the one hand, it helps people immediately who are in those places, but it also holds back the potential redevelopment of sites that definitely should be redeveloped as as higher density rental or mm-hmm. whatever. So, you know, that's one of those uh, kind of clear areas where policy sometimes shoots itself in the foot, I think. like a, It's like you have a, a goal, right, that they're defining of housing affordability, but then they don't quite, you know, nail that direction because they right. have things moving in the opposite direction that don't not all aligned you know so it's uh yeah it's challenging i feel like it is challenging <laughs> <laughs> yeah no kidding um no kidding you know you know maybe uh and we've we've kept you for a while here uh andrew i i'm just wondering i i know you know you had a forecast out in january it sounds like you kind of put your thumb on the scale a bit because you're like man these models are showing yeah. numbers everybody's gonna think i'm nuts <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah. uh and we've already uh, surpassed at least the numbers released. Based on where we're at today, like how do you see the rest of the year playing out in terms of pricing and maybe even one, three, and five? And and, and just also, I just want to put into context for the listener that's maybe maybe not tuned into the market right now, but there's lots of multiple offers going on right now. We're seeing prices yeah uh, in a like, lot of cases like higher than previous sales well, from re- even rebounding very quickly in terms price, of yeah where the price just is. to give some people some context it, the market seems dramatically busier just in the last little bit here a few weeks uh month or so yeah so yeah great question again the way the forecast was set up it's it's kind of an annual forecast so but a lot of forecasts they do like an annual average price I was doing a little bit differently where we're, we're going to say, you know, like this was the price at the end of the year. And then we're going to say the price will be at the end of the year, not not the average for the whole year. Right. So that's a subtle difference between my forecast and some of the other ones you'll see from like big banks and stuff, which will be a lot of those are still calling for like negative price. And that's part of the reason why mine's a little bit different is just the time frames and stuff that I've chosen to focus on in that. And yeah, I think like, you know, with the multiple offers and so on, I mean, it's sort of st- showing up in the data now that we're like, you don't see the multiple offers per se, but you do see like over asked sales. And like, and you know, some people I think often say, oh, well, that's just realtors just juicing the asking price, you know, they're, they're under underpricing just to get that over asked thing. It's like, I don't know about that, you know, because when you look at the actual what, what it should cost from a sort of appraisal perspective for one of those homes, it's like, no, a lot of these prices are pretty reasonable, uh, like where they're set by, by mm-hmm. the agents and so yep. on. So, 
I, I also feel like it's it, one thing that a lot of people don't don't understand about that strategy is if the demand, if you're not feeling very confident about the product and the market, you don't put something on for 99 cents when it's worth the buck 80, right? right? Like yeah. it just doesn't work. Yeah, it can backfire on you for sure. It's not it's not always a good strategy. And, and uh, but regardless, what we're definitely seeing, you know, a, a pretty significant uptick on, on the pricing. But that's that that's that inventory problem again, right? So like, when I go back to that forecast and I think about where sales are supposed to be, it was supposed to be uh, 28, 29,000 something end of the year for Greater Vancouver Real Estate Board areas. And, uh, you know, that's in line with historical norms, but are we going to get there? I don't know, because the inventory and in the in the new listings isn't quite getting there to get those sales numbers, but that's what's driving that price higher. And that's why you're getting those multiples is like, there's not a lot to choose out, uh, choose from out there. And when when somebody sees something great, a great home that they like, you know, they could see themselves in, right? It's not just a unit. <laughs> yeah, it's right. like, it's their new home, you know, and you can get excited about it. And like, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with multiples necessarily. Uh, it's just a function of the way the, the market works. And it's the way that we distribute scarce resources in an economy like this. Like, that's how else would you do it? You know, right. so I think that's probably going to result in a higher price at the end of the year that further higher than what our forecast was calling for, which again, I, I did put my thumb on the scale, bringing it down. It was, it called for about one to 2% growth across almost all product types. But like, I think we could be higher than that and like four or 5%, maybe, maybe even higher. I don't know. It really depends how it shakes out. And the latter half of the year, I do think that we'll probably see a pickup somewhat like there's seasonal patterns to the market, right? So like the, the back end of the year from the summer to the Winter usually things start to slow down, and but I think that'll be slightly busier than normal. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of my guess is because that settling of the interest rates and all that, where like the you know the a lot of buyers or sellers out there are starting to adjust to the fact that like okay, five year fixed is whatever it's at. It's been at that for a little while, it hasn't been moving around very much. It might be comfortable refinancing or getting a new mortgage or moving whatever in those kinds of scenarios. So I could see it being a little bit busier on the back half and. Uh, We'll see, though. You know, <laughs> bring me around uh, the, the, yeah. to the end of the year, and we'll see. You can you can shame me for my uh, terrible forecast. <laughs> we've uh, we've taken a lot of your time today, Andrew, but it's been a very fascinating conversation. So I appreciate you coming on. Uh, we do have this segment called the Five Wire: Five Lighthearted Questions that we end every show with. Can you stick around for that? Sure, of course. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey. That sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. So number one is one book you've read recently that you would recommend for our listeners. Uh, so yeah, so I don't really read a lot of books, like fiction sort of thing. I read like technical manuals and like stuff <laughs> like that, which... There's an HVAC manual or yeah, something. Yeah, like honestly, literally the last book that I remember reading is the Canadian Electrical Code. And I was like reading for various <laughs> reasons. And so, but actually what I've been reading, I read a lot of like interesting papers and things like that. Not always academic, but usually like research papers of sorts. Uh, one that's come out recently is so Microsoft, they just put out like their research team put out this paper a little while ago uh, on AI. 
and it's called like uh, Sparks of Artificial General Intelligence or something. And it's this pretty lengthy technical paper that I wouldn't recommend for people for like a lighthearted read necessarily, but it, it for people interested in it, it's fascinating because they get into talking, they're kind of kicking the tires on the on GPT-4, which is sort of this like... We just paid for a subscription for it. Yeah, so there's chat GPT, but GPT itself is sort of like the technology and, oh. and chat GPT yeah. is a, like a way of interacting with it, essentially. You 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 chat with the... the, the GPT. So we've got the chat I can't believe GPT you didn't know that. Four. Yeah. So that's what we're not talking about the same thing. Well, so. they, it is similar, but it's just yeah. like the, there's the tech that kind of drives it. And it's pretty, it's a fascinating, I haven't finished reading, but it's, uh, you know, they kind of go through like kicking the tires, seeing how it works in various scenarios. Like, can it do math? Can it like interact with a human well? Can it uh, paint a picture? Can it, what it like, they, and they're really kind of trying to elucidate where the boundaries of this technology are in this, in this thing. So fascinating read because it it's you know these are the developers of the, these kinds of products and so on and so they're kind of giving you an inside view of what people are thinking about how that technology might evolve down the line and so on so fascinating i mean the ai thing is just i'm infatuated with it now like it's just it's it's open pandora's box of things and there's no going back for somebody like me that's kind of a i tinker with things all the time i like building stuff and, and like GPT and, and chat GPT is like a really incredible tool for coding work, mm -hmm. which I do a lot of. It's uh, just fascinating. Like I can, I can code and I can take something written in one language, coding language, shove it into chat GPT and be like, here, give it, give it, give that to me in a different language. And then I can build like on that. And, and it's like that you would have to pay a developer quite a bit of money to do that. Just, right. you know, even right. five weeks ago or something. And it's yeah. like, now you can just do it. It's, it's absolutely mind blowing. So I think there's just, I think we're honestly on the cusp of like this. It's kind of like when the when the internet came around, right? And like people are like, "Who cares about pets.com or something?" It's like, well, you're about to start caring about like all of these things. Like mm -hmm. this is this is, in my view, probably the the next like big thing, big as, fundamental as, shift, as or, big as yeah. the internet or bigger. Yeah, I think it's just going to change the way we do everything. It, the technology it will be integrated into everything that you do, everything you touch from now on is going to start having some AI element into it, you know? That was, I just uh, was listening, I can't remember who was saying this, but they were saying that if you're not learning chat G or GPT right now and you're not understanding it or implementing it or learning how to communicate effectively with it, like that's what everybody should be, should be doing. You're going to yeah. be left behind in many ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like there's a lot of worry about it taking jobs and all these kinds of things, which is possible. Uh, like anything's always possible. But uh, the older I've gotten, the more I've tried to look at the world in a more positive, kind of optimistic sense. Even though the subject of our conversation <laughs> was not very, you know, like optimistic and so on. But it's because of the context we're operating in. But in this case, it's like you know, I think there's a lot of reasons to be very hopeful that technologies like that are really going to create a lot of positive impacts and change in the world. And I think the, the kinds of jobs and things that will come out of these technologies, the new availability of work, the, the kinds of things that people can do, it's just going to revolutionize like a lot of what we do as a society and, and so on. And just, I, I see a lot of potential for great things. There's, of course, with that risk and potential that it could kill us all i guess you know there's yeah. there is there is that looming possibility but let's let's try to brush that under the rug and yeah. use it for some fun things in the meantime <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, write me a resume yeah. uh, uh anyway 
<laughs> that's the first time we've talked about that, GPT that is, on the show. So uh, there's a first. Uh, okay. In the last few years, Andrew, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Oh, uh, well, we got a, we got a dog a couple of years ago. So that's been, it's kind of like a, a habit, I guess, if you will, like taking her for walks. So you, you get a, get a dog. She's a bigger dog, like 60 pounds, 70 pounds or something. So you, you can't just like leave her on the couch all day. She'll turn into a giant cou- couch potato. Or right, right? Right. So, uh, yeah, you got to get out there for walks. So we do, you know, uh, pretty big walks every single day and it's just good for you as an individual, your, your health and stuff, but it's good to get out there and clear the mind and kind of just spend some time with your significant others or whatever. And it's, yeah. uh, yeah, it's, that's, that's been a hugely positive change. Forces you out Fantastic. even when you don't want to go yeah, out. Yeah, even when it's raining, right? <laughs> yeah. Question number three, what have you been binge watching lately or a movie recommendation? Yeah, again, like I'm such a geek that I don't really watch like TV and things. I, I would be on chat GPT or something instead of watching right. <laughs> Uh But like we, we... Uh, Describe a movie to me. Yeah, yeah pretty <laughs> Re- much. Rewrite Rocky. Uh, uh, like I guess when the pandemic hit, we... Like everybody kind of hunkered down and, and uh, I, I know we, we watched, we kind of like binge watched, like I think it was called Narcos or something. It, oh yeah. 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 So that did, that like did not help with the anxiety levels of things <laughs> at that initial, you know, like yeah. pandemic was stressful enough initially. And I mean, watching a show like that with so much violence and kind of crazy stuff happening uh, it didn't help, but it was, it was a pretty good show. Entertaining for sure. <laughs> Apparently the, that was one of the big reasons that tourism in Colombia is uh yeah. has grown so much they that said right? that it was a result of the Netflix uh, I think that's the Netflix show right yeah Narcos so. or it's yeah, on yeah, Netflix yeah. but yeah that's uh it's increased tourism so wow. favorite band or music and this must we'll have to harken back to your yeah former career here yeah so I, like it's kind of a funny thing because uh as somebody kind of creates music and things that I don't have like I don't um I'm not like a person with a favorite band, kind of like huh. I'm a, sort of like I listen to lots of things. Like I love just about every kind of music, and you know, grew up in the '80s, so I've had that shift through various music phases, uh, you know, of life. Like the '80s, like you had metal and grunge and stuff comes out in the '90s, and then there's the hip hop phase that start happening in the 2000s, and then you know, so gone through all of that. But the older I've gotten, uh, really like coming back to like jazz, classical, flamenco is one that I like. I, I do, I play like flamenco style guitar and whatever. So that's a, it's a type of music that I listen to because it's complex. It's uh, very like rich in terms of its structure and, and whatever. So it's gives me a lot now, the older that I am, like a, a pop song is great, but like these more complex pieces really do things for my, yeah. you know, my mental interest of this stuff. So yeah, that's kind of what I, what I listen to these days. It's great. And last but not least, uh, something that you've purchased for under $1,500 that's uh, had a positive impact on your life. Oh, man. Yeah. I like, uh, I'm not a big spender. I, I'm so like cheap. <laughs> like, I, I don't, $1,500, like, I don't even spend anywhere close to that kind of money. Like, I, so yeah, actually, something I bought uh, on the music thing. I hadn't been doing much music composition or writing or anything like that for a long time. And, I just decided one day I was like, well, I should probably dust off all the old music gear. So I start doing that. I'm like, oh, a lot of the stuff doesn't work. It doesn't even like plug. It's like USB 1.0 and it like won't, won't plug into <laughs> things. And like, it's not working. The software is all buggy. It doesn't, I was like, I should just buy some new stuff. So I did, I, I went and bought like the software package from Native Instruments that gives you like a bunch of cool sounds and keyboards and whatever. Bought some like 
uh, recording gear, uh, if you will, for for just patching into the computer or whatever, like kind of like a mixing deck, but it's it's got more functionality to whatever. Anyways, when I bought one of those things and I was like, just being a kind of cheap person, I was like, ah, I really don't want to spend the money, but I'm really glad I did. It's fun. I've been making little musical selections and stuff since, and it's been a fun kind of experience to get back into it. Pretty nice. rusty, but it's fun. <laughs> and you're not selling them. Uh, this time, I think I'll just keep them for myself. I don't, I don't Matt, Matt's asking because he's burgeoning hip hop career here. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, maybe maybe we'll leave it there. But Andrew, that was a, a fantastic conversation. How can people find out more about what you're up to, and of course, uh, what yeah. the and we uh, got to plug the lead, the lead blog. Yeah, uh, yeah. Our, our vlog. I'm which, not sure which the video are we, which we are big fans of. Uh, yeah, you're doing a really great job over there. But also, what's happening at the board? Yeah, thanks. So. Uh, Definitely, you can get you can get in touch with me if you want to send an email at alis at rebgv.org. And I'm thankful to my group there at uh, communications at rebgv. We've just got a new kind of economic section on the website. It's a bit uh, rough around the edges in some ways. We've got to polish some things up, but there's content up there. So that's a great way to find out about what I'm up to, the things I'm producing. Uh, you just go to the rebgv.org and then hit on Market Watch, and then there'll be a little thing for economics there. You can find all the videos like the lead and uh, the lead has a blog that accompanies it here and there and our forecast and you can find the presentation I did there. So everything should be there. And if you don't find it, just send me an email and I can uh, send you the right link to something. <laughs> right. It should be there. So yeah, that's, that's probably the best ways to get in touch with me. And um, yeah. Well, super happy to see that the, that uh, all the content that's, uh, that's happening there. And uh, yeah, that's uh, fantastic. Well, thanks again for taking the time today. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Andrew Liss from the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. Yeah, I really enjoyed having Andrew in the studio. Andrew is the type of guy that you can just trust that he's done all the heavy lifting, right? Like he's just like I want him as yeah, my accountant. Exactly. I want him exactly. as the guy flying my airplane. There's something I about him, him that that super suggests, trustworthy. Yeah, it's and also like that he's looked at it from every single like he won't rest until I want to. Like if you gave him a puzzle kids. that was nearly impossible, he should be work for Google or something. If you if you gave him a puzzle and said, "Hey, you have to solve this," like he'd somehow solve it. He's he's uh, he's a super bright guy, and uh, he didn't. We've been we've been trying to get him on the program. The reality is, is he's in a relatively new position, right? He's in over his eyeballs. He's super busy, and I think he's producing he, really great content. And I think he's trying to to change how some of that data is presented. Like, yeah, he's got a big job. He's got a big job. And uh, yeah, if you actually, this is an interesting one, but on his way out, he said, what would you like to see in terms of stats? Um, like how, what would be useful in our industry? And we had a really great conversation about it. And, um, but I, I actually think if you're an agent, because we have so many people from the industry listening to this program, if there's something that you think would be super useful in your business or just helping you understand the market, flip us an email. Because maybe what we'll do is compile some ideas and send them to Andrew because honestly, he's got the means to to make this happen. That's and what he's, he's doing also, all day. And this and he's the guy that we actually want to to do this because like the the level of detail, like like what he he even like the things of like where to cut the data off. Yeah, you know, it's like 
you got to know that whatever whatever's happening at the board, the stats are getting even better right now. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a great conversation. What else do we have uh, before we head out for the day? Of course, we have our new website, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, but don't fear, you can still sign up for the tried and true Livewire. This is our weekly mailer. Couple real exciting projects that we have very early access to if you're kind of feeling the sense that the market's shifted and you want to get in that pre-sale market. The Livewire is a great place to be. We also have, of course, private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free. It's available at your fingertips. VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Sign up for help with buyers uh, and you'll get your own free account. I think it's called buy with us now. Buy with us. Buy with us. Or you could do slash PCS. Slash PCS. It's going to take you to... uh, But yeah, you got to have PCS in this market and you got to have the sold plan. If you're a seller sold plan, if you're a buyer PCS, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, last but not least, that new listing video, I'm still just floored by the the directorial the, debut that our, that we just dropped. We we, we took out our uh, young social media guru, uh, Marco, to tour him through the property. That's I right. I got to tell you, he wore a toque. Yeah. He looks like Rocky in the video. It's, uh, I it, told him, I said, wear your, dre- your you dress, dress your best, shows up in a puffy vest and a toque. I thought he ran there. It was like, it was like Philly 1983. There was, uh, there was some good contrast there. Uh, but yeah, definitely check it out at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. What year was wrong? On Instagram. Uh, no, it was before 88. Was Was it 83? I I just, I I would even uh, say earlier. Rocky won. If you're at home, what was the year? If you're into trivia. If you're into trivia. 76? Yeah, that's what I was. I was thinking late 70s. Oh, I thought that silly. was early 80s for sure. I watched that not long ago, though. So uh, I got the inside track. If you want to talk about that or anything else uh, or anything real estate related, I should say, 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. I'm sorry, I'm just looking at Rambo First Blood. <laughs> oh, now that's 80s. No. Guess what? 1972. You're thinking of First Blood, the second, what they call it. Wait a second. Yeah, no. Rambo First Blood no. is... Uh, That's is, impossible. It, no, absolutely. Oh, you know what? Sorry. <laughs> this is uh, David Morrell. Rock, Rocky was Rocky was his break breakthrough. Was that his breakthrough? Yeah. And also, we got that Kokomo line info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We're going to take the rest of this conversation okay. offline. I had, uh, I had it backwards. Uh, First Blood was 82. So, uh, anyways. Have Have a good week. week. 2,000 Faces for Radio. Subscribe today.